About three weeks ago, I was headed to the store hoping to purchase some things for Thanksgiving, but alas, our society doesn't know when Thanksgiving happens and when Christmas happens. Like Lady Mary of Downton Abbey, I think that things should be done properly, right? The Christmas tree goes up on Christmas and it stays up until Advent. You know, I, I watched with great delight that episode of Downton Abbey. Everything had been turned over to Christmas already. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but the sickening saccharine sweet words of the seasonal songs and the Hallmark Channel movies juxtaposed over the consumerist display, something about it just doesn't work for me. And I, I feel like this year in particular, you know, after two years of COVID tide, the emptiness of the shelves seemed to have some sort of a prophetic foreboding over Christmas as our society celebrates it. There are holes in the consumerism. I don't know, it's just even, even around Halloween when I start seeing the Christmas displays go up and I start hearing the holiday music beginning to play, I find myself exhausted. I'm just thinking about all of the effort that I'm going to have to muster to work myself up into the appropriate emotional state, right, to celebrate Christmas a month and a half before Christmas. I am somewhat cynical. Maybe I'm just jaded. Maybe you're a bit like me. If you are like me, then Advent, which is the Christmas, the, the, the Christian liturgical New Year, actually, our, our calendar starts anew this Sunday. This is the first Sunday of Advent, right? And this is when the year begins. And Advent, um, like any good New Year celebration, involves a little bit of looking backward and a little bit of looking forward. We're considering what has gone before, and we're considering what yet lies ahead, during the four weeks of Advent, we do some work. We look back to the people of Israel, right, in their years of wandering through the wilderness and in their years in the land and their years in exile, longing, waiting for their Messiah to appear, right? And we remember, of course, Christmas when he indeed took on flesh and dwelt among us. So there's this looking back that happens in Advent, but there's also this looking forward because when Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago, he came to bear a cross rather than to be seated on his throne. And so even for us today in Advent, while we look back and we remember the longings of God's people for the coming of the Christ, we too are longing for the coming of the Christ. And so there's a looking forward. There's an anticipation of the day when Christ comes again. Advent is a season for looking back and for looking forward. It's a season for reflection. It's a season where we can rightly express our longings and recognize what is wrong with the world today and also to express our deepest longing that things should be made right again. I grew up in the Baptist tradition, and Advent was the one liturgical season that we actually kept. And I remember we would hang up the greens the first Sunday in Advent, and we would light the Advent candles. And there was something really magical about it because 
what it was that we were remembering in Advent became tangible. You could see it. You could smell it. You could taste it, right? It was, it was, it was meeting me with all of my senses. And I don't know, I'm a person who tends towards a bit of melancholy. And I, I just, I love the season of Advent. So if you're like me, and you're a little bit prone to cynicism, or perhaps a bit jaded with the Christmas music starting in October, I'm here to tell you, Advent is a season for you. And don't forget, just because it is a little bit melancholy, Advent is also a time of hope. It's just hope. Not yet, Matt. So this morning I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 50. And I think it is incredibly appropriate that we remember this psalm this morning. Psalm 50 tells us at at verse 1 in the very beginning that this was a psalm of Asaph. Now Asaph, uh, we know from from elsewhere in scripture, was a priest. Um, In some places he's described as a seer. In other words, he was a prophet. He had the ability to foresee things that were yet to come. And he was also the chief musician at the tabernacle, first in Bethel, right? And then later in Jerusalem, when David moved the tabernacle to his capital city. And so he was a contemporary of King David. And Psalm 50 begins by telling us this is a Psalm of Asaph. So one of the things that we can pretty well conjecture about this Psalm was that it was intended for use once at least every seven years at the Festival of Booths. Um, Now, the Festival of Booths would have happened um, in the fall around this time of year after the last bit of the harvest was collected and the people would gather together first in Bethel and and then later in Jerusalem. And once every seven years at the Feast of Booths, they were commanded in Deuteronomy 31 to keep what we now know today as a covenant renewal service. So all of the people of the land would gather together outside of the tabernacle in their appropriate places, and the high priest would read the law. And the people would be reminded of the various ways that they had failed to uphold their side of their covenant with God. And they had an opportunity to repent but then to renew their commitment to be God's covenant people. And this psalm was intended for precisely that context of covenant renewal. Um, If you look with me in verse 1, an interesting aspect of this, you can't quite see it in the English, but it's there in the original Hebrew. It begins with the words El, which is God, Elohim, which is another name for God, and then Yahweh. Right? God is making very clear as his people have gathered together to the tabernacle for this service of worship to know exactly who it is that has assembled them together in this place. God, the God, Yahweh, the Lord I am. Right? He gives them his personal name and lets them know that he is assembling all of these people together. He says even further, it's not just his people, but he summons the whole earth. And Asaph gives us this phrase, from the rising of the sun to the setting. In other words, he's saying, as far east as the sun rises, and as far west as the sun sets, God summons all peoples of the earth to come to Jerusalem. 
to hear the word he's about to speak. And then in verse 4, he says, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth below that he may judge his people. Now, it's a bit of a bait and switch here, right? If you're the people of God, you've come to Bethel or to Jerusalem for this covenant renewal service. God's calling all of the nations together. And you know, right, all of those Gentile nations, those are, those are the bad people. We're the good guys, right, in the story. So we came to Bethel, to Jerusalem, expecting that God was going to tell those folks a word. And yet he calls all of these people, all of, all of our enemies together. And then he says he's going to judge us, his people. And then in verse 5, as if we didn't already understand what's, what's happening now, he says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, this, this word that's used for faithful ones, right, in, in the Hebrew is chazita, right, which is a, a variant of the word chazed. Now, how many of you know the psalm that says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever? We've all heard that. So the word that's translated steadfast love, that's chesed. And actually a better translation of that would be covenant faithfulness, right? Covenant keeping love. So it's translated steadfast love, but it's language that's deeply rooted in this idea of a covenantal relationship that God has with his people. And so he says here in verse 5, gather together to me my covenant faithful keeping people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. He's going to judge us. And then we skip down to verse 7. This is all just introductory here. He says, hear, O my people. Again, the words in Hebrew would have been very familiar to his audience. He says, Shema Yisrael, right? From the Shema. Um, Nick was talking about this a couple of weeks ago, right? It's, it's the, the summary of the law that we recite every week in our worship, right? Where God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all that you have, all that you possess. And so this becomes the, the measuring line by which God is going to judge his people. Have you loved me? with all of your hearts, with all of your strength, with all that you are. Shema, come, I'm going to judge you. And so God then proceeds to offer words of judgment to his own people. And he, he separates his people into two categories here in the psalm. Um, I would say the first classification are the cynical. And the second classification are the jaded. Okay, well, what do I mean by those words? Cynical people are people who have lived enough life to know that we live in a world that just ain't fair. It's broken. If you're expecting that you're going to put good things in and get good things out, you're just going to be disappointed. And so the cynical person says, just get what you can get out of life and don't expect anything of anybody, right? And the jaded person, well, that's a person who they've just become numb, Right? They've, they've lived enough life. They've celebrated enough Christmases. They know how to go through the actions of celebrating Christmas, but it just doesn't really mean that much to them on the inside. 
And I don't know about you, but I feel like I might fit into both of those classes, but at least one of them, right, as I'm coming into what will be Christmas in four weeks' time. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper and take a look at these words that God has first to the cynical. And uh, it's very clear that these are words of judgment. Would you look with me? I'm going to read over this again, starting in verse 16. Now, to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant upon your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And if you keep company... It's with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things have you done. And I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself? Well, now I rebuke you and I lay this charge before you. And so I see here there are at least four words of judgment against the cynical. And and remember, these are God's own people. First, he tells them that they hate discipline, right? In other words, what what is discipline? The word here is intended to describe um, what it is that a parent does with a child. Whenever a child goes off um, into the woods or or is, is putting their finger up next to the electrical socket, discipline is, you know, when the parent says, no, no, don't do that. That's going to hurt you, right? And no discipline seems pleasant in the moment that it's administered, right? But any parent who loves his child is going to provide discipline. It's their way of keeping them safe. It's their way of training them the right way that they should go. And, and as we're told in Proverbs, that, that if you raise up a child in the way that he should go, when he is grown, he will not depart from it. And yet he's saying of the cynical that they've come to a place in their relationship with God where they hate his discipline. I don't don't know about you. Have you ever been in a context where you think that discipline was a bit unfair? Why is it that I'm getting disciplined, but these people over here aren't? Right? How many of your parents told you at some point in time, well, I'm not their parents, and if they, their parents told them to go jump off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Right? All of those maddening truths right, that are delivered to the child who does not want to hear discipline. And that's what God's saying about the cynical. Right? You've seen the brokenness of the world. You've seen these other people who have run off, and they've lived life the way that they want to live it, and no one has told them boo about it. And you're tired of it. You're tired of God telling you that you can't live the way that you want to live also. So the cynical person hates judgment, hates discipline. And yet God is showing up yet again to offer his discipline. Why? Because he loves us. The second thing that he says to the cynical uh, in verse 18, if you see a thief... You're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. Well, those are are two of the big ten commandments, right? Where he's calling them out. But essentially they celebrate wickedness. And 
I don't know about you, but I feel like I have just observed so clearly over the course of the last year and a half, almost two years, this sense where everybody is so fed up with the brokenness of the world, especially in this country, that it's turned into this, uh, it's kind of like brother and sister fighting in the back seat of the car, right? There's side A and there's side B, and, and they're just picking at each other constantly. And they love nothing more than when the other gets hurt or upset or is ashamed or is called out for something, right? It happens in the news all the time. I, I, don't, I don't know, did you, anybody watch the whole Rittenhouse trial? I feel like reading the coverage of that was just like being the parent in the, in, in the driver's seat with kids fighting in the backyard, in the, in the back seat of the car, right? They, they, don't, they don't celebrate what's good. They celebrate when bad things happen to each other. So when the thief steals something, they rejoice because somebody lost what was stolen. They love sitting with adulterers because it makes them feel just a little bit better about themselves. The third thing that he tells them is that they don't love the truth, but they prefer spin and slander. He says it in verses 19 and 20. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. In other words, you say whatever you want to say, whatever comes to your mind, you speak it. And you are so ready to spin any story so that it fits your own narrative. Does this sound familiar? I feel like I've been living this. And then lastly, and I think this is the most serious of all in, in verse 21. He says, you thought that I was one like yourself. He's calling out the cynical for their tendency to remake God after their own image. When I was serving as a hospital chaplain in St. Louis for about four years, I um, I served with a, a lot of other chaplains from other traditions who had very, very different beliefs than me. Um, scripture was not necessarily the foundation of their faith and their practice. Um, these folks, if, if I were to put a, a single word to describe them and their relationship with God, it, it would have to be cynical. Um, they chose to be clergy for one reason or another, usually because of something in their past, right, they, that created a longing, a, a need to be cared for. And so that manifested into their own desire to care for other people, but in a very cynical way. And, and these folks just really could not stand the word of God. They couldn't stand the precepts of God's word. And the thing that I observed over and over and over again is, is when I would talk with them about the things that they believed that, that I didn't believe was I would go to God's word and they would go to their own experience. And, and their own experience shaped what they believed about God because what had happened over the years in their own cynicism is that they became their own God. And it's, it's the real risk. It's the logical conclusion of living a lifestyle of cynicism that ultimately we become the voice of God ourselves. I was um, having a bad day at work a few weeks ago, and I decided to take a, a break. I put the dog on the leash and decided I was just going to go for a walk. 
um, uh, around town with the dog and, and try and cool off. And I, I had only gotten about a, a block away from our apartment when um, I, I looked over and found a, a car parked in an alleyway with a bumper sticker that just absolutely infuriated me. I don't know. Does that ever happen to you? Do you find yourselves infuriated by bumper stickers? Maybe it's just me. It was a really simple bumper sticker. And I think if anybody else looked at it, they would think, oh, yeah, okay, that's great. But the bumper sticker, it it had three words. And the three words were, you are enough. And I stopped for a second. And I, I know I literally like had so lost myself that I, I looked at the bumper sticker and I, and I said out loud, no, I'm not. <laughs> and, and, it, and it got me really worked up. I mean, I know what they're after. They're, they're, they're trying to tell you, hey, there are people in the world who are going to try and put you down and make you feel small and not enough. And don't listen to them because you're okay. You're enough. That's, that's the message that they're trying to say. But again, I, I spent several years working as a, as a clergy person in a context where moralistic therapeutic deism was the religion du jour. Um, and, and I know what that means when it says you are enough, right? It, it, it again is that logical conclusion of a lifestyle of cynicism that tells me, you know what? When I go to God's word and I read these judgments and I feel condemned, I just need to walk away from that because I'm enough. Now, friends, I I know that my colleagues uh, who who I worked with who would have said something like that, they meant nothing but good when they said that. They really wanted to encourage people and make people feel better. But, but the problem is that the thing that they're saying to make people feel better about themselves actually is a lie. Because when I go to the word of God, I see over and over and over and over again my own insufficiency. But God's not showing me my insufficiency to make me feel small. God's showing my insufficiency so that there will be this deep, desperate longing within me to seek after something that is enough. To seek after something that's going to fill up the emptiness within me and make me whole. And if I tell myself I'm not enough, that, that, that I am enough then I'm robbing myself of the opportunity to go out and find the thing that really is enough to fill up the emptiness and the desperate need. Right? And that thing, of course, is the gospel. I'm not enough. Now, that sounds really cynical, doesn't it? It's kind of counterintuitive. But to say that I'm not enough is actually the beginning of a turn for the cynical. So God has words of judgment for the cynical, and he has words of hope. And again, these may seem really counterintuitive, but but they're there in verses 21 through 23, if you have ears to hear them. God says to the cynical, these things have you done, and I've been silence. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. 
And then in verse 23, to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Well, these don't sound like comforting words at first reading. But I think that the moment that we recognize this little kernel of truth, that I'm actually not enough, that deep within me there actually is something that is broken and terribly in need of mending, and I can't fix it. Then we can come back and we can reread these words with, with a new pair of glasses, right? Because the good news always starts with bad news, right? It's, it's the two parts of the gospel, right? And the bad news is you are broken, but, but the good news is that there's hope, there's healing, there's mending, there's fixing, there's redemption. And God says, I have been silent, but the, the implication here is that he's no longer silent. God has spoken, and there is nothing more healing to the cynical heart and mind that thinks that God is far away paying no attention to me and my hurt and the brokenness of the world than to know that God sees me and that God has spoken. A little bit of application. If you're like me and you find yourself a little bit cynical this time of year. Friends, it's time for a little bit of reframing because... The correction that God offers to us, sometimes the shame that we feel when we recognize that we don't measure up to God's measuring pruning line, that shame in and of itself is actually the grace of God that is compelling you to come to him. Stop trying to fix yourself. Stop trying to take care of things on your own. He's telling you, child, come, come here. Sit on my lap and I will fix it. The words of God for the cynical, but but now the words of God for the jaded, for those who just feel a little bit numb as they go through the motions. Again, there are words of judgment and words of hope. So let's look at those words of judgment. If you will, verses 8 through 15. God says to the jaded, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver and you shall glorify me. So I think I hear two two words of judgment to the jaded, to the person who is coming this Advent and and leading up to Christmas season, going through all of the motions and yet feeling numb and empty. And the first word of judgment that God has to the jaded is that he doesn't need your sacrifice. He doesn't need it. Doesn't really mean much of anything to him whatsoever because everything that you have to offer him is already his. 
God doesn't need your sacrifice. Okay, but this is what's really important because I I think we tend to go back and, and read the New Testament into the Old Testament sometimes in these situations. This would have been a little bit confusing, right, to to Asaph's original audience. What do you mean that you don't need my sacrifices? If if I turn back to Deuteronomy, if I turn back, right, to Leviticus, I see all of these requirements that you've placed upon me. I'm supposed to make this sacrifice at this time for this occasion and this sacrifice at this occasion. And, and if there's this little condition right here, I need to add this extra sacrifice. What does God mean when he says he doesn't want my sacrifice? Well, I think he makes really clear, right, in verse 14. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. But he tells them he's not going to judge them because they didn't bring sacrifices. They've been bringing sacrifices and they're constantly in front of him. The thing is that something's missing in all of this. The people are coming to God thinking that they're offering him a sacrifice to satisfy him, to satisfy his hunger or his thirst. And the thing that God is saying is that these sacrifices aren't for me, they're for you. Right? These sacrifices themselves are a constant reminder before the people of God that they desperately are in need of his mercy and his salvation. Stop bringing sacrifices to me that are empty without even being thoughtful about what it means and why I've called you to offer it. God doesn't need our sacrifice. We do. When I was 13 years old, I really, really wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And I I went to my mom and I asked her repeatedly, to get me a guitar and, and for me to be able to take guitar lessons. But the problem here was that um, in the past, she had bought me a piano and paid for piano lessons and a saxophone and paid for saxophone lessons and, and more and more and more. And the thing is that as soon as immediate talent wore off and I had to actually practice, I was done with that instrument and ready to move on to the next one. And so the problem here was that I never practiced, right? So mom was thinking, you know, you've got a piano, you've got a saxophone, you never practiced them. What's the difference going to be with a guitar here? So long story short, um, I really, really, really was, was adamant that I wanted to play the guitar. And so somebody had pity on me or perhaps on my parents, and they donated a guitar that I could actually learn how to play on. And so at that point, I had an instrument, so it it, it made sense. Mom started looking for somebody who could teach me guitar lessons. And we had a seminary student at our church who led the music ministry. And so it seemed to make sense. Well, they could use a little extra money. We'll pay them to teach Todd guitar. And so I showed up to that first guitar lesson really enthusiastic. I had had my book of CDs, and I was going to learn how to play all of my favorite songs. And, um, and Ray was his name, who was, who was teaching me guitar. Ray had, had other thoughts in mind. Ray decided that what I really needed to learn was music theory. Now, tell a 13-year-old boy who just wants to learn how to play power chords that before you get to power chords, you have to learn music theory. It was not pleasant for him, I'm sure. 
So I would show up week after week, like having learned and memorized the different things that I needed to learn and memorize for, for my music theory in the hopes that if, if, if I finally learned all these things, then Ray would teach me how to play my favorite songs. The thing is that I didn't realize it at the time. I, I didn't realize it until probably almost 20 years later. Um, Ray could have taught me how to play cool power chords, and I could have learned how to play, you know, what was my favorite song at the time, which I would never want to play today. But, but instead, you know, with the whole proverbial, you know, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Ray taught me music theory, which enabled me to actually work as a professional musician for the better part of 15 years of my life. He put food on my table and in my belly with those music theory lessons. See, I thought I was learning music theory to appease Ray so that I could do what I wanted to do, but Ray was teaching me music theory for me. I, I have worked as a principal tenor in the St. Louis Box Society. I have been a musician at weddings and a church musician, and, and it has provided for me 10 times over. So it's an example, right? Ray didn't need my sacrifice to learn music theory. I needed it. The second word of judgment that God has for the judgment is that, that God does not offer gifts of gratitude for our sacrifices. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes when I'm doing something hard, I go to scripture and I see that God has called me to tithe. It's a good example, right? We just did our whole stewardship, not a stewardship thing, right? So God calls me to tithe. And so sometimes, you know, I write that check and I think, all right, I, I did a good thing. And, and perhaps... Because I have better theology than this, like, when I think about it. But, but I think embedded somewhere, I genuinely believe that if I've written that check, that God's going to do something for me out of gratitude because I wrote that check, right? Um, the same way when, you know, there's something that, that my sinful nature just desires deeply, you know, maybe, maybe my sinful nature is just prone to anger. But, you know, when something triggers me and I'm, I'm likely to get angry, I'm just going to calm myself down because I know that God says that I shouldn't be angry like that, right? And because I'm fighting against that tendency to be angry, you know, when an opportunity comes my way, the expectation is that God's going to grease the wheels and, and make something happen for me, right? Now, well, well, friends, that's karma, and it's not in the Bible, it's not actually the way that God works. God does not offer gifts of gratitude. Again, that's for us. That's our job to give gifts of gratitude. And the thing about gratitude is, um, you know, just, just as I said that, um, that, that correction and shame are actually the grace of God. They're gifts as a remedy to, um, to cynicism, I really believe that gratitude is the remedy to covetousness and to our being jaded. So I, I was just talking with my, my wife um, earlier this week about how um, there are things that we're longing for in our lives today, and we're wondering why it is that God is not bringing those gifts to us today. But we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and we had an opportunity to actually reflect backwards a little bit and realize all of the things that we have today that five, 
10, 15 years ago, we found ourselves longing for, right? We're married. We found each other. We have incredible jobs that provide for our needs. We're stable. We don't go to sleep at night worried how we're going to pay our bills. I, I remember those sleepless nights and how I prayed and longed for God to bring enough stability that that wouldn't be my continued existence anymore. And yet God has provided those things for me. And instead of being filled with gratitude and remembering how I did without those things and how God has provided them, I've just really quickly moved forward to all the things that I don't have now that I want. And the reality is with this pattern, as soon as God gives me that thing, I'm going to forget about it and I'm going to move on to the next thing as well. Gratitude is the remedy to a covetous heart. And we have a lot to be grateful for. In fact, God speaks these these words to us in verses 14 and 15. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the most high. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Then he says in verse 23, to the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And what does he mean by ordering our way rightly? It's by recognizing that everything that we have today, we have not because of how hard we worked for it, not because we're good people. Every single good gift we have is because of the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon us. That could be our possessions, it could be our job, it could be our home, it could be our family and loved ones. But more important than even all of those things, right, is the comfort, the ceaseless comfort that we have in the knowledge that God has provided a sacrifice before us. He's offered his own son, Jesus Christ, who has paid a debt that we could never pay for ourselves, who has suffered a punishment on our behalf so that we would not suffer that punishment. Friends, if we have absolutely nothing else, we have full reason to offer gratitude and thanksgiving to God because of what he's given us in his son, Jesus Christ. So how do we apply that? Well, it's just like we're told elsewhere in the Psalms when when David says, what shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits to me? He says, I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, what am I going to offer to God to say thank you for what you've done? I'm going to lift up the cup and ask for more, more grace, more grace. Fill me up, God, because without your grace, I can do nothing. And so this Advent, right? What is the cure for being jaded? It's to offer up thanksgiving. It's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, right, as Nick is about to do shortly, we're told to lift up our hearts. Right? We're told to come and to take the bread and the wine and the words are spoken. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. If you find yourself cynical, if you find yourself jaded at this time of year, friends, I would encourage you to look for the grace of God in his correction, 
to look for the grace of God and the fact that he's provided for us everything that we need and to offer up to him a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Amen.